Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. Alongside falling sales, volume, and units, plant-based meat has slid into the valley of disillusionment, also known as the trough of despair or sorrow. And while it's unclear if the category has hit bottom yet, many stakeholders are looking for a way up the other side, where the promise of full integration, success, and fulfillment waits. Not everyone will make it. And many of those who do reach the other side won't do it alone, opting to merge with other players as Tofurky did last week when Moringa Nutritional Foods acquired it. In this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, stakeholders from across the value chain will share what it takes for plant-based meat to pass through the lowest points of the valley of disillusionment and climb up to the informed optimism phase and eventually that new plane of success. According to Eben Baer, co-founder and CEO of My Forest Foods, Lisa Feria, the CEO and managing partner for Stray Dog Capital, and Tali Nagushtan, the CEO of the chickpea protein ingredient producer Anovapro, the future of plant-based protein needs to be cleaner, healthier, and more accessible. So let's start by taking a look at where plant-based meat is currently. According to IRI data crunched by 210 Analytics, the $84 million in combined refrigerated and frozen plant-based meat sales sold in the four weeks ending December 25th were down 3% from the same time in 2021 and down 0.3% for the full calendar year, even with higher prices due to inflation helping to pad those numbers. The decline is far from universal, though, as IRI data reveals in the 6.8% year-over-year sales increase for frozen meat alternatives compared to the 13.5% decrease in refrigerated meat alternatives. But the combined effect is still pretty grim, with sales for both in the calendar year dipping 0.3% to $1.8 billion. Units, which are a bit of a better indicator now during the economic downturn, show an even more dire picture. With a startling 12.3% drop in combined fresh and frozen plant-based meat products in the four weeks ending December 25th over the same time in 2021, and an 8.2% drop in calendar 2022. While decidedly not good, this decline isn't all bad either. According to Eben Baer, co-founder and CEO of My Forest Foods, which makes bacon and will soon introduce a beef jerky alternative, both made from whole-cut mycelium or gourmet mushroom. He explains why he is optimistic about the segment's slide into the trough of despair. The trough of despair. It's actually optimistic because the plant, the, every technology goes through this cycle. It's the, we went through this peak of euphoria. It's like a curve. And you go down this, to the bottom, which is way below where it should be, which is called the trough of despair. A bunch of companies, tech-based companies, are going to go bankrupt. And then, like, the second-generation entrants usually win the day. And they usually – it's a very typical history of innovation. So from AI, self-driving cars, VCR, computers, you know, airplanes, you can put them all on this sort of curve. doesn't mean it'll be fun, but at least it's not like, you know, it's not like plant-based is being singled out. It's a, it's a natural evolution of a new category. I think we're sliding into the bottom. So 
that's good because we're almost to the bottom. But, like, you know, you got to remember the move up from, say, the end of 19 to the middle of 21 was, like, a two-year move. And the hangover is going to take probably 12 to 18 months as well. So I think we already started that last summer. We're maybe halfway through that. But I expect to see lots of green shoots across the category in the fall. And, you know, I think in areas like we're at with, like, a super clean label and plant-based bacon where, where people want the product, like, you don't see any of the doom and gloom. You just see opportunity. Um, and that's kind of how that cycle tends to go. We, we started in one store. Uh, as you know, we, we've been selling out for 100 weeks straight there. You know, our competitive product in that store moves two cases a week maybe. That would be like a pork bacon. Um, plant-based is less. Uh, we move 15 cases a week, right? That was our first sort of data that like, hey, this product might be special. Uh, we're in 34 locations now, including a bunch in Manhattan. Uh, we're not quite at the flow-through rate we get in our like home, hometown store there, but we're still at two to three times the next nearest competitor um, in terms of flow-through rate. And, and I really think that validates where we started three years ago. My Forest Foods is far from alone in its ongoing ascent despite the overall category's decline, revealing ongoing consumer interest and demand for plant-based proteins. So given this demand, how did the category find itself in its current predicament, with watermark sales during COVID tumbling into this trough of disillusionment? Bear attributes the rapid rise and fall of plant-based meat in part to three factors. We got here because this is a good idea and is a permanent vector for society. And we all know that in 50 years or 100 years or 20 years, whatever longish time frame you want to pick, uh, we fundamentally will need different ways to feed the world. And um, scaling industrial animal agriculture is not the solution. So full stop. That's why we're here. Um, second reason uh, is people, culture is changing. People are starting to ask for that. And that sort of kicked off the first boom in plant-based meats. Um, what's the problem? The problem is many of the first and generation entrants created hyper-processed, complicated labels, uh, maybe originally uh, pitched as being healthier for you. Maybe there's some arguments it is. Maybe there's some arguments there isn't. But either way, there's consumer confusion, uh, a little bit of a consumer ick factor. Um, and then candidly, like, as you've sort of pushed market, you're getting into a race to the bottom. So a lot of people in ground meat and sausages, you know, competing now. Um, in a category where consumers are like, yeah, I love the idea, but like, I actually, I want to eat something I understand. I want it to have a clean label. Um, and I want to be good for me, right? Uh, and I think what you're seeing, I think that's how we got here. And I think that's very natural. So like, you have a big boom of optimism. Everyone gets too excited. Then they're like, oh, this kind of sucks. Everything must suck. They throw it all out. And then people come back and they're like, actually, that wasn't a bad idea. And these next generation products really are the thing I was looking for. Increased consumer price sensitivity also is contributing to the decline in plant-based meat sales and unit velocity, according to Lisa Feria, the CEO and managing partner for Stray Dog Capital, which is one of the most prolific and well-recognized venture capital funds in the plant-based space. So what we notice in the data is that Gen Zs and millennials are still buying these products, they're still interested in these products, they're still going to the retailers and asking for more of these products. But if you're a flexitarian outside of these generations, you kind of follow, you know, you follow the wallet, right? It's, the wallet feels a pinch and Beyond Meat is, you know, $9.99 and everything else is $6.99. You're going to probably eat a little bit more of the latter and, uh, versus the former. And so we're seeing a market adjustment based in, a, in many ways because of the price. Um, we, because we see what's happening in terms of generational shifts, you know, in a few years, millennials and Gen Zs are going to be the, the majority of the market because the cohorts are so large. They're larger than baby boomers. 
So they're going to be the majority of the people that are buying products in the market. And so we'll see more um, resilience in terms of consistency of growth. Um, that's our hypothesis, and that's what we've seen in the past. But right now, we're seeing a little bit more, just similar to the category, uh, we're seeing you know, some, some squeezing in terms of consumer purchasing. All of these factors, declining sales, consumer pushback against existing offerings, economic constraints, they are all pushing many retailers to reconsider their product mix and how many plant-based proteins they should stock and how many facings each should get. And as this skew rationalization gains momentum, category players will need to work harder to justify their slots and drive velocity so that they can escape this dreaded drop of despair. But always one for finding the silver lining, Bear explains that a culling of the category will help the brand that survives ultimately thrive. I think they are scaling back. How many ground beef brands, were, plant-based beef brands, were last, launched in the last two years, right? Like everyone had one. And now these, a lot of these corporates are shutting those brands down, and I think you're going to see that across the retail space. Um, I could just tell you anecdotally, like, we're not having any trouble getting into retailers. In fact, they're all really excited to have a bacon and a really good one. Um, and so, again, I think this kind of idea that, like, yeah, you're going to see a contraction. But, again, if you can view it as creating opportunity for the next generation, um, it's not necessarily unhealthy. It's like succession in a forest, right? In a forest, when it goes from field to forest, the first early adopter trees come in. The ironwoods, the cedars, they grow on anything. They grow quickly. Um, and in 20 years, you've got maple trees coming up around them. And those maple trees will be there for two or 300 years, but they can't get started without the first generation. And, and I really view this, you know, if you take the long view, I, I think that's the world we're in. I think the lesson to take away is like this diversity of entrance, you know, whether it's bacon, whether it's a whole cut fish fillet, uh, whether it's a whole cut chicken breast, right? These are definitely addressing new needs in the market. There'll be a lot of great businesses that get built by starting in niches, whether it's bacon or sushi or other areas that will then have an awesome business case to expand out from. And that's also typically more the sustainable business trajectory. Feria recommends plant-based protein players defend against skew rationalization by understanding what retailers need and then using data to deliver a product and story that meets that need. Make sure that you understand what the retailer is looking to achieve. You know, some buyers are all about growing their categories, and that's what they get you know, rated on, that's what they get recompensed on, their bonuses are based on growing categories, and so then you you really have to lay out your category growth story there to support that. Some retailers are all about, hey, I need, right now my profit margins of the market as a category are not good, so anybody who's not giving me enough profit margins, I'm, I'm going to kick out. And so you have to make your story on profit margins, and how are you planning on giving them more or giving them more traffic that then is going to result in, in more profit. Like you really have to understand who are your most important retailers. Usually it's the 80-20 rule. You have 20% or less of retailers that are driving most of your volume. So how do you make sure that you understand that buyer and what they're looking for? And then make sure that you're supporting and you have data supporting the fact that you are a key player in that new strategy. Because we are seeing some um, – some skew rationalizations um, across the board, not just in this market, just in the supermarket in general. The past few years, consumer, consumers have wanted to try a bunch of stuff. They, I've never seen as much trial um, as I've seen in the past two years. There really were 
more likely to try it, literally anything they saw in the store or that they heard their friends you know, talk about or social media. Now, again, it's back to how do I get the products that I love at a good or better price? And, and you have to understand that that's you know, what your consumer is doing and how do you make sure you're in that cart. And who else is in that cart that you can partner with and do cross-brand promotions and things like that? It's about being very, very scrappy. For the plant-based meat market to pull itself out of this trough of despair and earn a sizable spot on store shelves and in consumer pantries, they will need to do more than just defend themselves. Many will have to remake themselves with better nutritionals and cleaner labels. As Feria explains, the future of plant-based protein is less about effectively mimicking animal protein and more about offering something that is both delicious and nutritious. When we started investing, our focus was um, mimicry. So it was all about the companies that could mimic meat and chicken, etc., the best. And so we invest in companies like Beyond Meat, among many others, weren't really looking that much at health. What we have come to realize years later is that, yeah, you really need to have a little bit of everything. Beyond Meat is an extreme, extremely delicious, you know, they put out extremely delicious products. Um, the you know, we don't see consumers eating them every day in every single meal because of the nutritional piece. And so there's been some exaggeration of, yes, you know, this is, don't eat this, this is not any better. I mean, you have zero cholesterol. In many occasions, you have a lot more fiber. You do have a nutritional story that's definitely better than animal-based products. But is it good? That's more of a question, Right. And so we have really focused on finding companies that meet all those. Is it delicious? Yes, check. Is it uh, nutritious? Yes, check. You know, can I feed it to my kids three times a day when they're asking for a simple, quick meal and I want to do something plant-based that we're actually going to do uh, eat? Yes. Um, and so we have, we have as a fund shifted over time. When I'm looking at that nutrition, nutritional label in the back, I want to have no concerns, you know. I want to be able to, you know, tell my, my family to eat it as many times in the day as they want because there's zero health concerns there. And that's our aspiration is to continue to find entrepreneurs and companies that deliver on that. Bear explains that many plant-based protein consumers equate healthy and better for you with clean label. I think it's really about, one, understanding everything that's written down, and two, like, there should be like, you know, four or five things in your, on that label, right? And like a lot of the labels have 30 things on them. So I, I really think it's about that. that is, um, there are like analytical ways you can determine like how good a food or isn't it for you. And then there's like an emotional connection a consumer has. And so I think when a consumer says clean label, that's kind of what they mean. So whether it says chickpeas or oyster mushroom mycelium, like I feel like that kind of passes the litmus test. You know, if it says methyl cellulose extract as ingredient 32, like people get anxious for better or worse, right? Bear added my forest foods, short and simple ingredient list featuring whole cut mushroom meat and better nutritional profile compared to pork bacon are fundamental drivers helping him succeed while others flounder. For products not based on whole cut mushroom, cleaning up labels likely will require a helping hand from ingredient suppliers notes Tali Nagustan, the CEO and the chickpea protein ingredient producer, Anova Pro. The ingredient uh, space is like the enabler for the CPGs to become more innovative, meaning the 
all those companies that are doing uh, meat substitutes or dairy alternatives or egg replacement, they wouldn't be able to be considered innovative if they use the same ingredients, the same methodologies, the same processes as they did in the past. So they must have collaboration with ingredients company and new processes and technologies and new machineries and so on that will enable them to become the new, let's say, tech or the new food of the future. And I think that this synergy between the plant-based ingredients and the consumer-facing new brands that are developing new kinds of food is something that has to go together. This is the, the offering is so much connected, you cannot take them apart. Anova Pro is helping to lead the way with its lineup of novel chickpea protein-based ingredients that work across plant-based categories, including meat, dairy, and egg alternatives. Innovo Pro had developed a platform based on its chickpea protein extraction technology. And our flagship product is, of course, the CP Pro 70, which is a 70% chickpea protein. And based on our chickpea protein, we are now developing solutions or systems that can help both the dairy alternative companies, meat analog companies, and, and egg replacement companies. We had developed a system, it's like a mixture of powder with several ingredients that mimics the functionality of an egg white. So for the patisserie kind of the business, bakery, specialty bakery products, this egg replacement is functioning like an egg white without the egg. And the, the meringue, for example, that I know that meringue is, is more like a European word, but uh, it is heavily used in Europe. And the, the meringue that is based on our CP foam, you can never tell the difference from a meringue that is based on an egg white. And there is, as you said, a lot of issues with eggs and even companies that, um, you know, uh, always relied on, on the supplies of the egg powders are now having their concerns and they want something that really gives them the functionality, but without the fear that something will get wrong in the supply chain. Existing plant-based meat brands that made their names by focusing first on taste still have a positive nutrition to tell, but Faria says they need to be actively engaged in the ongoing discourse about health and share how their products are positively contributing. So it's really about how do you make sure that that the only thing that people are listening to or hearing is not, oh, this category has a lot of fat or, you know, some products from this category has a lot of fat or stuff like that, right? It's making sure that you're really communicating that story of like, hey, you know, cholesterol, remember that horrible thing? Um, We have zero of it. Make sure that you are communicating your trait correctly because there's a lot of fear mongering out there and so much conflicting data. Plant-based protein brands that emerge from the trough of despair also will need to tackle their price point, a challenge that has plagued the space from day one, but which companies likely cannot solve by themselves. 
Theria explains many players in the space have dramatically lowered their prices as they've scaled, and some have even achieved price parity. But few consumers see this because many retailers treat these products as margin drivers rather than loss leaders. What we have seen in the past is also that in the situations where the company has been able to achieve lower prices or price parity, the retailers won't carry it all the way through. They will just absorb it as extra margins because they see these categories as profit accretive. You know, there's been this, um, just this, this common knowledge, I guess, over the years that cow's milk is a lost leader. They make zero money on cow's milk, or very, very, very little. And the reason that they're okay with that is because it brings people into the store. Well, alternative proteins and, and plant-based products are sort of the opposite of that. Um, they look at these products as the way to make money, to add additional margins to the retailer. And so what we see is this difficulty of working with retailers to make sure that if you are, as a company, able to achieve price parity or even below, that it will be reflected on shelf, which, you know, this is a mantra that my time at P&G, <laughs> our salespeople would always say, is that prices is the sole discretion of the retailer. So there's not much you can do about what price they're actually going to price your products at. You have a suggested retail price, which they may or may not listen to. And so these, this category needs to, over time, work with retailers to make sure that we have a long-term partnership that will not only be profit accretive, but most importantly, traffic and, and volume accretive, where if you're able to find that you know, balance and convince your retailer of that balance between you know, getting more product, more people to buy your product, and increasing in volume and growing the category and all that, then at the end of the day, they're going to make more money than they do in these you know, loss leader categories because they are getting that volume and they're getting the feed in the store. They don't need to do it in a, in a, in a, in a um, profit-losing way, if you will. And so that's like the first big bucket is how do you work with retailers to make sure that your price reductions are reflected? The second bucket is, yeah, you need to get to scale. You know, what, what normally happens in food to get to price parity or lower price is that you have a company like General Mills comes and buys you because getting to scale, that is what they do best. That's their jam. And so you get to the company to a point where consumers are, you know, you're showing that you have great traction, consumers are buying you, et cetera. And the way to get all those flexitarians to move over is going to be to reduce the price 20 30%. Um, to undercut the incumbent's pricing or at least match it. And that's where a large company comes to play. Whenever you reach that scale where you can negotiate with retailers and have more consistency of supply chains, then that's where you, you get to a good spot. The most effective way to negotiate with retailers, according to Feria, is to use data to show why they should not exceed the suggested retail price and how offering plant-based protein for less actually could generate higher overall store sales, similar to the synergies that dairy milk offers stores. One of the things that we recommend to our companies is that now you're getting into a point where you have to be very data-driven and um, information-seeking to make sure that you're optimizing how you go to market. So instead of thinking about your company as, I need to be launching innovation every 9 to 12 months and boom, 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 boom. You really need to be thinking about what is my current SKU lineup 
and how do I get the most amount of data possible? Because, for example, in my time at P&G, the way that we would encourage our retailers to stick to the MSRP would be to show them the data that said, look, once you go past this number, you're going to lose 20 30% of people. Or once you start you know, increasing the price or going past this uh, price, like it starts becoming a price premium of this percent over the incumbent, you start losing food traffic and your market is going to shrink because the person that's picking me up has spent you know, 30 40% more on their grocery trip than the person who's buying the incumbent and armed with as much data as possible, that's what convinces the retailer. Because they can't be an expert in every product in the supermarket, right? Or whatever area they're in. And so you are the one that's an expert in your category and in your SKUs and what's adding to, what, what is it bringing to the retailer? And you have to have a really, really, really clear story there. Because otherwise, they're just going to go with their gut. They're going to say, well, you know what, I'll just increase you 40%. And if I lose 10% of people, that's fine. You have to convince and show them that actually what they're doing to the category is shrinking it because that's what absolutely they don't want to shrink the category. And so it's really about how do you really think about your price promotions, your marketing, your social media, the tools that you have at hand, and how do you measure those for incrementality? You know, every dollar that I put here, how much is it going to get me? Every price promotion that I go 10%, 20% under, how much is it going to get me? And those repeat buyers that every time I buy myself more new, more new customers or repeat customers, like just having more granularity there is incredibly important. You know? This same data-driven story will also help plant-based protein companies secure funding in the coming years, something Bear Notes is becoming increasingly hard to come by. The straight answer is it's a bad time to be raising money if you're in the sector. <laughs> I think um, a lot of investors deployed capital at valuations that were probably too high um, and possibly in businesses that didn't have the fundamentals to support them. The headwinds for new entrants in this space who may be coming up is that like, rather than a mania that um, you know, maybe valued beyond meat at $15 billion post-IPO, um, we're, in a, we're in a low where we're maybe undervaluing that company at a billion or whatever it's at now. Um, either way, that does flow back to the private markets, and it's a hard time. And I think the net result is like a lot of companies will go out of business this year, and that kind of sucks and is sad. I do think uh, the market is a good weighing machine, and you know we'll see where we are in two years. But you know, I think pr- companies with great products uh, and great technologies who are building good businesses um, are going to make it, and will get stronger through this period. Nagushan agrees that funding to plant-based proteins is harder to secure. But she says she is seeing investors slowly come back to the space. However, they have a different mindset now than they did during the peak mania for plant-based meat. By the end of 2022, and even now, the, the, really the beginning of 2023, we see more and more investors coming back to the market after sometimes they were like, you know, on hold, waiting to see um, how the markets will react. And what will be the, the, you know, the new circumstances. But we see them coming back differently and in a different mode. Like they're becoming more strict and uh, demanding enhanced due diligence processes. They look uh, more on the short term traction and they look for companies that are income generating. 
and they have a clear path to profitability. And on 2022 and 2021, they were doing business in a different way. So I think, and I think actually that this is really good. This is how investors should do their due diligence. And, uh, and actually 2022, if you look at the whole year, uh, a lot of money was invested in 2022. And uh, we believe that uh, in 2023, it's going to grow as well. And the investors are becoming aware that there are different segments in the plant-based market. And now we see more sub-specializations in VCs. Like in the past, plant-based was, like you said, one term. But now there is like... VCs that say that they invest only in in ingredients, in plant-based ingredients technologies, and there are VCs that say that they invest only in CPG, in consumer-facing startups. So this is a big difference than how they were talking like two years ago when plant-based was actually one term. And uh, we see a new term of even more uh, general um, coming, which is climate tech. And they're looking, those investors are looking not only for plant-based. Plant-based is not good enough. Food tech is not well-defined enough. But they're looking for technologies in food tech or technologies in ag tech that are also beneficial to support the the climate and and uh, to find technologies that will reduce the impact that we're doing. So I think this is quite a progress than what we had here two years ago. And more uh, and, and new players are entering the the, the plant based party. We can we see more family VCs. But in general, money is still there, and uh, and we see real growth in 2022 in investment in plant-based than in 2021. As more investors return to the plant-based protein space and players address the problems that sent their category plummeting into the trough of despair, they will eventually emerge on the other side which Bear says won't look as great as the peak, but it'll also still be great with plant-based re-emerging as a dominant portion of the general population's diet. With that, we have come to the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope that you'll join me again next week, and to help you remember, I encourage you to subscribe. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive, profitable, and safe week.